0: We've just uh, finished our series on focus on peace, and uh, we're moving into a Lent series. And uh, Quakers are not always great at observing the liturgical year, but we've been trying here in North Valley for the last several years to notice this important movement that Lent is a helpful thing for our spiritual practice. And there's lots of ways to look at Lent. Uh, there's a lot of... A lot of times we look at the practices of Lent, of the asceticism and taking time aside to uh, purify ourselves, those kind of things, without looking at the heart of Lent, which is the preparation for uh, Jesus' resurrection. This is a way to put ourselves in a place to be more receptive to what Christ is doing, what the risen Christ is doing in our lives. So what we're going to do uh, this time is something that we kind of do with uh, fear and trembling. I'll get back to that in a moment. But uh, as Leslie and I spoke and uh, as there's been some movement that we've heard from some of you all, we want to start looking at what are these kind of core things in what we believe that form us to be who we are. And so one of those things that seems obvious to do during Lent is to look at what we've known as usually called atonement theory, which is how do we think about what Jesus death and resurrection on the cross means. Uh, and it's something that often in churches we don't think about much. We just sort of say, well, whatever you assume is what happened. And the, and the truth is there's a lot of things that we could, that people have assumed and said has happened over the years uh, to make sense of this uh, that, that we just assume and we don't look at. So we're going to take some time over the next month or so to look at some of those ways that people in the history of the church have thought about this. So I want to say a couple things about that process this week to invite us into it. We're in a new place right now uh, with all that's happening culturally and in the church. And I don't want to be melodramatic about it. That's a joke. Um, But there's several things that have happened in in our community life and in our broader culture that make a big difference of where we're at and how we're thinking about these things now. So one of the things that happened in the last five years, uh, for those of you who've been around for a while, I'm sure you remember it, uh, we left the Yearly Meeting. And that was kind of our spiritual faith home for since the beginning of North Valley. And we haven't joined with another Yearly Meeting yet. And so that means all the things that we've said, that we officially declared we believe, we have left those in an official way. It doesn't mean we've left them in our thinking, necessarily. But we no longer have a guiding uh, document or set of things that we have said, this is what we believe. Uh, We tried. And what was really kind of funny about that is at North Valley, when we tried, and some of you might have been part of that process, we were great on what we should do. Like, everybody agreed. You know, what it means to love Jesus is to do these things. And then we started talking about what are the theological underpinnings of doing these things and we could not agree. Like, almost immediately, we had a very divergent conversation where up to that point, we had a very sort of unified conversation. And, you know, if, you're, if I was able to step back from it, I thought it was kind of amusing. When I was sort of pulled into the middle of it, I thought, oh no, how are we ever going to do this together? So that's one thing that's happening is that we're in this new place. We're trying to decide what is it that we think here? What can we say about who we are and what we believe? Our broader cultural context uh, is also in a new place. Um, the church, uh, not just the Friends Church, but the church in general has done a lot to lose trust with people over the last, I don't know, probably two millennia. But. Um, <laughs> More seriously and and more pertinent for us in the last 40 years, there's been a lot of things that have happened that have broken trust. There's been uh, misuse of money, there's been sex scandals, there's been uh, abuse of people in the church. There's been a real disconnect in a lot of ways from what we see Jesus calling us to, to what the church is doing. And this is a broad movement um, within the church overall, and it causes us to question There's a whole new uh, access to knowledge. You have it in your pocket right now. You could look up, or most of you, uh, you could look it up, anything you wanna know, you could look up and find some answer to. And so this is a revolution for us. And I think we forget, because it's so convenient now, how easy it is to, to know about things, or at least to gain some academic or trivial knowledge, for sure. And these things start to seep into our lives. There's ideas and thoughts that are present in our culture, or at least in our subcultures, that begin to ask questions that we wouldn't have asked before because we didn't know about it. It, was, it probably was there, but we didn't know about it. And in some ways, that's causing a lot of us, I think, to do some deconstruction of our theology. We're starting to kind of tear it down and say, what does this mean? How does this work? Does this stuff go together? And I want to make the note that it's really easy to do deconstruction. It's not hard to tear something down. It's hard to build something back up. And so part of the challenge that we want to kind of take on as we think about these things is how do we rebuild something? How do do we come to a place where we're comfortable with some things that we can say we are about rather than just the things that we say we're not about? And that's harder work. Some of you know um, my friend and probably some of your friend Bruce Murphy Uh, He's been a pastor and uh, a college dean, and he's a wise guy uh, in both senses of that term. And uh, he, he said to me several years back, which seems like an obvious thing to say, we have to take seriously the cross if we're going to be followers of Christ. And I think sometimes the cross is this sort of like, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? And some of us would rather just ignore that that's a critical part of following God. But if we're going to be followers of Christ, that's sort of a central part of the story. We can't just let it alone. And we might be encouraged to recognize that this is not a new problem to figure out what do we do with this part of the story. So if we look at Philippians 2, this is one of, uh, you know, pastor's favorite verses when we're trying to work out what we believe. Because it seems to suggest that we ought to. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now this may seem uh, a little crazy that I had never noticed this before. But when I started looking at this verse this week, I had never put together that the verses that come before it, which are Christ, uh, is Paul talking about the Christ hymn. Like, be of the same mind as Jesus. Be willing to be humble, to sacrifice yourself for the good of others. And this follows that directly. And, you know, some interfering monks at some point decided there ought to be a little break there, so we didn't connect those things. But I don't think Paul, when he wrote that, had disconnected thoughts going on. I think these are about the same thing. So there's this call from Paul that we're to be like Christ, to sacrifice ourselves for God's good work. And second part that we often leave out of the Philippians thing is we, we stop at the fear and trembling. And that's really not the right place to stop. You know, that's like stopping the movie Beauty and the Beast when the beast is dead and saying the movie's over. You, know, like you want the resurrection of the beast at the end of the movie, not just him dying. And we're not just stuck to work out our theology with fear and trembling, but, but Paul continues, For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill God's good purpose. I was really grateful for Cole bringing that Peace Be Still, uh, Jesus on the Lake story, because it emphasizes the same idea. We can trust God even in the midst of our fear and trembling, that God will work through us. We don't have to work all of this out intellectually to make sense of it. We have to trust that God will work through us to work this out. So, one encouragement is, even since Paul was writing, people have been trying to figure out, what do we do with the cross? He's even more clear about it in 1 Corinthians. He says this, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. For Jews ask for signs and Greek desires wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So that is to say, look, this has always been a bit confusing. It doesn't fit our paradigms very well. So we got work in front of us, and yet we can trust that God will continue to work with us. And making sense of this may not be the main call. Some of this comes down to what we call orthodoxy. Orthodoxy literally means right thinking. And much of the writing we have in the New Testament is actually there to kind of promote orthodoxy. It's at least to fight against heresy, which is like willfully wrong thinking. And so there's all the, particularly the letters are saying, you know, this is how you should think about this and don't think about it this way. There's different pieces of that going on historically that people are thinking about things like Gnosticism, which is saying, if I understand it, then it's all about my head, it's not about my body, it's not about my whole life. And you see a lot of Paul's writings fighting against that. So this idea of right thinking is not, I mean, it's there from the beginning, let's put it that way. The folks who are in leadership in the church from the beginning are trying to say, there are good ways to think about this, there are not so helpful ways to think about this. But a lot of these kind of um, orthodoxy, right thinking, comes about at the same time that Scripture is canonized. So when they gather all the sacred writings that have happened historically and they say, what really represents what we think is God's word to us long term? Like this is what we think is important. Uh, A lot of that happens in uh, the fourth century in Rome. And a lot of the creeds that we say are orthodox ways of thinking about things also happen in Rome at about that time. So we can once again send a thank you letter to Constantine and the Romans for codifying what we should think. Or perhaps we should say, trying to codify what we should think about Christianity. And there's a bit of a departure here from Paul's work of saying, work out our salvation. This is a changing thing. This is an interactive thing. This is a relational thing. Because the leadership in the church in Rome says, these are the things you have to think. And if you think these things, then you're okay. That said, Augustine of Hippo, who is like kind of the premier theological bishop uh, really in Christian history, but definitely in Rome, uh, says this. If you understand, it is not God. Which sort of makes you think, well, how did they write all these I found uh, I found this cartoon that I thought kind of summed up some of this. And it's going to be real hard to read because there's a Zoom banner across it. So uh, the first guy says, Charles, I found this amazing technology to simplify difficult concepts. You simply put the ideas into the transmogrifier and press the button, and voila. And he's got this list of ideas, political theory, social justice, philosophy, ethics, sin, atonement, Jesus, Bible God. Puts them into his box, and he zaps them. And his friend says, it looks like it just made a smaller box. Cute, right? I understand everything now. And this may be what Augustine was trying to say. Partly that God is bigger than what we can think. And partly we can't just simplify the mystery.
1: In some sense, we can't know
0: anything. And maybe knowing isn't really the point. There are certainly points in scripture that would suggest right belief or knowing is what is central. Like the way we often hear John 3.16. For God so loved the world that whoever should believe in him shall not perish. But even that doesn't define what it means to believe. What set of belief do I have to have? What does it mean to believe? Does that mean that we trust a set of ideological understandings, which we get to conveniently insert since John doesn't specify? Or is that to trust relationship with Jesus, and that somehow provides salvation for us? This is a call to embrace mystery, not get the right answer. In part because there are no confirmable right answers. Whatever right answers we assume are not so much because they are provably so, but because they've been accepted for hundreds or thousands of years and so we just accept them. But these answers are not scientific facts. They are instead metaphors. There are ways that we're trying to make sense of what we understand about who God is or what Jesus was up to. For as much as the New Testament says about these things, it's widely open to interpretation. But our proclivity is to take these interpretations and write them down in stone. George Fox, who's the um, kind of founder of Quakerism, said this, Christ has been too long locked up in the mass or in the book. Let him be your prophet, priest, and king. Obey him. And it's not to say that Quakers don't have our own sort of orthodoxy. That's easy enough to see. If you talk to Quakers for about 30 seconds, you'll start to find there's things that we think are right thinking and have to be thought. And, and those things often have been codified as well. But more often than not, Quakers have been concerned with we, what we call orthopraxy, which is right practice rather than right thinking. And you can see in Fox's uh, quote here that he believed that the way that we understood God through the practice of the liturgy of the Mass and the codification of that, or through the ways he calls the book, That's what he often calls the Bible. Uh, That the ways that we have interpreted scripture get in the way of the presence of Christ leading us, of us having right action. And early friends were often more concerned with right action than right thought. That's partly why friends did not have creeds to begin with. In some ways, it's easy to find scripture to defend that thought, that Jesus thought that too. You're my friends, if you do what I command. If you love me, you will keep my commandments from John 14, 15. But, on the other hand, we have people giving examples like Lucretia Mott, uh, who's a a well-known Quaker uh, woman. Uh, Some people think she invented applesauce. That's not true. Lucretia Mott says this, if our principles are right, why should we be cowards? which says Quakers did care about what they thought about, and there's something to be said about that. As Les and I um, talked about this series and where we were headed, there's this kind of weird dynamic of both and, because maybe it matters more what you do than what you think, but you often do what you think. Does that make sense? Like our actions are formed by the ways we think about things. I was thinking about this, that... um, If you believe that the earth is flat, it's really hard to circumnavigate the globe. Conceptually, you're not gonna think that I can fly around this round thing if you don't think it's round. Or if we think about things like the Doctrine of Discovery, which is the papal bull from 1493 that said, "Uh, Christians, white Christians, your job is to go and subjugate the world. Maybe that wouldn't have happened if that thought process had not been condoned. Or maybe we wouldn't have the climate issues that we currently have if the industrialists had not thought that the world was theirs to pillage. This kind of thinking behind things makes a big difference. Or to say it in some positive ways, we might not have public access to all beaches in Oregon if these folks had not thought to say, let's make that a law. And my favorite is thinking about ice cream I think most of us would agree we want people to practice good orthodoxy when it comes to making ice cream. We would like them to follow the recipe. We want ice cream to taste a certain way. Now there's some leniency, as I thought about, this. because you know, all metaphors break down at some point, like we run into a, if you push this far enough, we're going to come into trouble. But we would agree that most of us want ice cream to be cold, most of us want it to be fat-based in some way, and most of us want it to be sweet. Uh, except for those heretics up at Salt and Straw. Um, and there's some flexibility about how we get there. We could use almond milk. We could use artificial sweetener. We could use agave. We could use any number of things to make something that we would say is generally like ice cream. But we want it to be like that. We think our thought and our process, our orthodoxy about making ice cream, leads to orthopracticy. Pract- I can't even say it anymore. I Praxy, thank you. Orthopraxy in the way that we do make ice cream and in the way that we eat it. Now, that runs into its limits, right? Any metaphor runs into its limits. And I don't want to suggest that faithfulness is a recipe-based thing, or at least blindly a recipe-based thing. We want to be careful about what we think, not because we've got to get the right answer, but because we want, if we continue to press this metaphor too far, we want a frozen tree that makes sense to eat. Right? We want to be thoughtful about our faithfulness because we want our lives to truly be faithful. And when we think the wrong things about God, which I think there are wrong things to think about God, then we might do the wrong things in faithfulness. I'd also contend that we're all theologians. Maybe not intentional theologians, but we all think things about God. And we all think those things in ways that also influence how we act. Our lives are formed by the way we conceive these things. So when we think about what Jesus was doing on the cross and what Jesus' death and resurrection means, it's not to get the right answer so that we'll pass... um, The Inquisitional Board, right? It's so that our lives will be formed, so that our ideas will be formed in a way that we get as close to good relationship with God as we can. During this time of Lent, we want to make sure to make space to explore and wonder and to pay attention to how faithful folks who've come before us have tried to make sense of all this. And I might encourage us to remember Buechner's words that we opened the service with several weeks ago. Are we willing to play at this? Are we willing to hold this loosely rather than tighten? I think sometimes we think God can't handle it if we think the wrong thought. And that seems to me to be a pretty small God. So maybe we have some space to experiment in our thinking, to wonder about why do we think that? And does that actually work out if we work it all the way through? That we might see this as a chance to meet God in a new way, rather than seeing it as a test that we might fail. So let's take some time to listen today. What is Christ speaking to you? What is the invitation? There's some queries that will be up on the screen. How do you understand Jesus' death and resurrection? And how does that form the way you live your life? So take some time to listen, and if you have a message for us, let's be faithful to listen to that as well.